0: Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. As a parent of a young child learning to explore the world, read, and write, few things are more fantastic than good books. A good book for children should have some great artwork, an interesting plot and lesson worthy of discussion and questions, and hopefully a window into something new about the world. So imagine my glee when I discovered a children's book about the life of the Buddha, from wisdom publications with a story by andrea miller and illustrations by artist rima fujita the day the buddha woke up is on my daughter's bookshelf and we use it often to practice her kindergarten sight words throughout the lifespan of this show i've come across fascinating work by so many people and today's guest andrea miller does some fantastic work that i enjoy following Andrea Miller is the deputy editor of Lion's Roar magazine, which is formerly called The Shambhala Sun. Lion's Roar is a publication force within Buddhism that so many of you will already know, and Andrea is also the author of two picture books, The Day the Buddha Woke Up and My First Book of Canadian Birds. She's also the editor of three anthologies, most recently, All the Rage, Buddhist Wisdom on Anger and Acceptance. I spoke with Andrea also on the heels of her trip to India to attend the International Buddhist Conclave, which afforded her the chance to attend sacred Buddhist sites. She has a brand new piece out in December 2018 through Lion's Roar, where she writes often, and the article is called, The Buddha Was Here. We discuss this trip and her new piece in detail in this episode, and you can find a link to that article in the show notes. If you like this show and find it valuable, please consider taking a moment to rate it in whatever podcast service you use. Share it with your friends, follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, or more. I really need your help to keep this show going, and anything you can do to help spread the episodes are deeply appreciated. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Andrea Miller. For coming on the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Can you spend a moment and just kind of introduce yourself and your work to the audience?
1: Sure. Um, My name is Andrea Miller, as you said, and I'm the deputy editor of Lions Roar magazine, which was formerly called The Shambhala Sun. And um, I also am a children's author. Um, I've written two picture books. One is called The Day the Buddha Woke Up, which was published in June by Wisdom Publications. And the other one is called the day the uh, sorry, The other one is called my first book of Canadian birds, which was published by Nimbus uh, just in September. Fantastic.
0: So I have a lot of listeners who are parents, and I am the parent of a five-year-old myself. So let's start with your book. Your board book is called the day the Buddha woke up, and in our email correspondence before this talk, you told me that you love board books because they are quote durable books that can be loved fiercely. By rough, messy, little people. And I absolutely <laughs> love that description. What was it that made you inspired to make a board book about the life of the Buddha, Siddhartha?
1: Well, really, it was my daughter. I have to say, before my daughter was born, I never gave board books a thought at all. It just wasn't the type of literature I thought about, although I did like children's literature. Um, but so my daughter was born, and because I'm a reader, Pretty much as soon as she came home from the hospital, I started reading books to her. And at first, I was reading my novels, like you know the novels I was reading to her, Um, and that was fine from the begin in the very beginning because you know I think she just liked hearing my voice. Or really, she didn't really care about anything that was happening. (laughs) at That stage. Um, But pretty soon she got bored of my novels, and she really wanted a book that was for her age group. And so her age group, that, that for her age group, that really was a board book at that time. And and the thing about a board book, and they aren't always like this, but I think that what makes a board book successful is that it doesn't have very many words on the page because they get bored. Little babies get bored. Little toddlers get bored. They want to move on. And yeah. also, yeah. And also, I think the images, the images really... Um, I think that being brightly colored, lots of contrast really appeals to them. I think some board books, you know, we have this idea about babies and pastels. And so I think a lot of board books, they do sort of that sort of color scheme. And I don't actually think that's very appealing to babies. Hmm. So, so I think bright and, and few words. Um, and so I quickly realized once I started reading board books that there weren't any Buddhist board books. I had been reviewing Um, I I write the reviews for Lion's Roar, and I've been doing that for many years, and I've always liked children's literature, so I had been really trying to review the Buddhist children's lit that was available. So I I knew there was no Buddhist board book out there, and I thought, well, I'm going to do that. What, uh,
0: (laughs) yeah, what was... um uh, so people might think that doing a children's book might be easy because there is like it, it is shorter and there are less words. What did you find to be an unexpected challenge of making a board book? Uh,
1: well, I think the the challenge of making a board book about the Buddha is that I basically had to um, write in just a few words and in such a way that was very easy to grasp. The Buddha's teachings, all of the Buddha's teachings, and you know it's a ra- it's a really complex philosophy. So to to write that in just a few words was a little challenging. That took some thought.
0: Excellent, and the illustrations really really do jump out. And so you have a collaborator. The illustrator is Rima Fujita. And I'm curious which came first, the art or the words. And the reason I asked that question is because I had an author on a few months ago to talk about the Ramayana, the Indian epic. And for her, what was interesting is that all of the artwork came first. And I found that to be really interesting. So I'm curious about the um, collaboration process with Rima Fujita.
1: Uh, well, it was the concept of the book for the book and the words that came first, um, and then it was only after that that I contacted Rima to see if she would be interested in taking on the project. And I was absolutely thrilled that she was. Um, I had actually, in I think it was maybe 2010, I wrote a profile of an organization called uh, called Tibet House for a Buddha Dharma, uh, the Practitioners Quarterly, and that's how I discovered Rima because she had done an exhibition at the Tibet House. And so I saw her work, and I just immediately fell in love with it, and um, I thought, wow, if I ever write a children's book, I'd like it to be illustrated by Rima. And so it was really wonderful that she took on the project.
0: So she was already involved sort of like in doing Buddhist-inspired artwork before the book?
1: Very much so. She is a long-term, dedicated Buddhist.
0: Excellent. That's really cool. I hope the listeners will go and check out more of her work as well. Um, can, can we back up a little bit in, in, uh, in your life? Yes, of course. Sure. So what was your religious or spiritual path like throughout your life, and uh, how were you first introduced to Buddhist teachings?
1: Um, well, my family is Catholic, but not very religious at all. Um, when I was a kid, I went to Sunday school, but that was only because I had a friend who went to Sunday school, and I wanted to go, too. I didn't, when I signed up, I didn't actually really understand what it was about. Um, but I became quite passionate about it for a kid. Um, but by junior high, I had a crisis of faith and it, it just, it wasn't doing anything for me anymore. Um, so I guess I didn't learn about Buddhism in any real way until I took a course in university called Chinese and Japanese religions. And I have to confess to you, it didn't appeal to me at that time. Ooh, why not? (laughs) Well, maybe it was the way it was presented or, um... Maybe it was my age, but I guess maybe it seemed a little dreary to me. You know, Buddhism, the, at the very heart of Buddhism, is this idea of the four noble truths. And the first one is there is suffering. And maybe that just wasn't the message I wanted to hear as a 20-year-old or 21-year-old
0: were there any uh, teachers or professors or friends kind of along that university years path that were able to get through to you? Like, how did it finally get through to you?
1: Um, Well, I ended up uh, years after university. I ended up getting really into yoga. And at that time, I was teaching English as a second language here in Halifax, and my coworker was a Buddhist, and he happened to have an extra copy of the Shambhala Sun and it was a yoga issue. So he gave it to me and I read it and I absolutely loved it. I went back to work and I was like, oh, wow, I love this magazine. So he gave me another issue that was, um, you know, much more about Buddhism. And I also really loved that. And he ha- and he told me that the magazine was produced here in Halifax, which was amazing. I had studied journalism, so I knew immediately that I wanted to work at the Shambhala Sun and, um, so I read some books about Buddhism and I became more and more interested. And then finally I got the job at the magazine in 2006. Um, but it was another six years after that before I really committed to being a Buddhist before I became like, I, I really identified as being a Buddhist. And, and that's just because I didn't feel like I just wanted to become a Buddhist because I work here and, um, you know, it was like the easiest thing to do, I really felt like I wanted to do it for me, and I really really needed to find the right tradition for me. You know, there are lots of differences in the different schools of Buddhism, and I just had some questions I really had to work out.
0: So that's a really interesting point, and I think a lot of people identify with that. So I've met a lot of people who read about Buddhism, but don't actually do Buddhism, And there's a big difference between that. Like I have, you know, I had a hundred books on my shelf about Buddhism, um, you know, that I read for years and years before I ever actually tried anything, which I think is kind of familiar for Westerners. So, what books would you say that you were reading during those transition years, uh, pre-practice, that really spoke to you? Like, do you have any recommendations for people who are like just exploring?
1: Um. Well. Um, I think there are a lot of really good books um, there's one by Zong sir Kensei, which I think is really good called what makes you what makes you not a Buddhist um, and I really love Timah Hans material that's actually the tradition I ended up um, really identifying with um, I think though my one of my favorite ones is I think called be free where you are Um so those ones, uh, uh, people really, really love Pema. You know, that if if someone is not really necessarily a committed Buddhist, that seems to be a voice that really resonates.
0: Absolutely. Um, so now, after you did commit to being an actual practicing Buddhist in about 2012, like you said, I'm curious about what your practice is like. So a lot of people um, listening who aren't Buddhists might wonder what a Buddhist does every day. So what does a normal day or a week of practice look like in your life?
1: Well, I think what, um, I don't, uh, first of all, I want to say, you know, I'm not a Buddhist teacher and I would actually say I'm not a very good practicing Buddhist. Um, You know, I don't practice as much as I should or, you know, I, I find it difficult in the run of a week uh, you know, with a full-time job and all sorts of other commitments and kids to really make um, formal practice a commitment like it probably should be. Um that's it. I sit when I can, and I and you know ethics we we tend to not talk about Buddhist ethics that much in the West, but traditionally they're a really strong part of Buddhism, and I certainly try to live ethically. Um, and when I go on retreat, you know, I really. Um, I really find it easy to get into the deep contemplative um, way on retreat, Um, you know, uh, engaging in mindful eating and mindful walking. But, you know, as I said, I don't think I'm like the very best practitioner out there by any means. But maybe as a Buddhist journalist, that kind of makes me more uh, relatable for a lot of our readers (laughs) because I think a lot of us feel like we're not, uh, we're not ideal practitioners.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I actually talked about that with uh, Mato Moroshi from Karinji Monastery in Wisconsin. He and I were talking about practice and I told him that I had a tendency to like binge practice on like Saturday Zazen Kai or something like that, but okay. then do nothing else for like weeks and weeks and weeks and then binge again. And he had a really good laugh about that because he says that's actually super common. People go for a long time doing nothing and then they just binge on it instead of doing like 10 minutes a day, which is what he would arguably prefer everybody yeah. do instead
1: so are you a Buddhist
0: um, you know I've dabbled in a little bit but I've dabbled in a lot of things
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, and you know, part of the joy of doing a show like this is that I get to learn from multiple different traditions. Um, Like my last several episodes have been about Sikhism, witchcraft, Mary Magdalene, the politics of Christianity in America. So I'm kind of like all over the map as far as this, because it's just endlessly fascinating to me to talk about these types of traditions.
1: Different paths to a common center, as they say.
0: Absolutely. Um, So... Let's move on to Lions Roar specifically because this is like a super important um, organization and the legacy within North American Buddhism and Lions Roar is pretty important. So what is Lions Roar? Can you just kind of introduce what, um, what Lions Roar is, what the mission is, and what kind of services you guys bring to um, your readers?
1: Well, we have the Lions Roar Magazine and we have the Lions Roar Foundation. Um, So Lions Roar Magazine, which used to be called Shmala Sun, as I said, um, is sort of a major arm of the Lions Roar Foundation. So the Lions Roar Foundation is all about um, bringing genuine dharma to the West. And um, we have... The two magazines we have, Buddha Dharma, the Practitioners Quarterly, as well, which is really for committed Buddhists. So it's for people who are really um, very much on the Buddhist path. But Lions Roar Magazine is uh, a little more general than that. Um, you know, it's only—I think it—I mean, the numbers vary over the years, but it's about thirty-six percent of our readers are committed Buddhists, and the rest of our readers are. Maybe spiritual but not religious, or from another tradition, or um, or they're not religious at all. Not they're just interested in the magazine for whatever reason. And I really think that our our goal with Lions Were a Magazine is not really to convert people to Buddhism. It's really about um, showing people the tools and perspectives that Buddhism has that are helpful to, that can be helpful to people in their Lives, their personal lives, and also to society.
0: What does lion's roar mean to you personally?
1: Um. Well, I really like that I'm involved in something that you know, as we say in Buddhism, is is right livelihood. Like I, I really appreciate that I'm helping to bring these tools and perspectives to people, and um, and also, honestly. I also just enjoy, you know, before I worked for the magazine and now, I really enjoy the quality of the writing and, um, you know, the stories um, that we tell, you know, people talking about their lives and experiences.
0: I love that you just mentioned Right Livelihood because whenever I would teach a high school class um, in a public school in Missouri where I taught for a long time, we would read descriptions of the Eightfold Path. And students would get really fascinated by Right Livelihood because they would ask amazing questions like if my uncle owns a bar and sells alcohol to somebody who is addicted to and dependent upon alcohol and they continue to feed this person alcohol, does that mean that they're on right they're off the right livelihood path? So that's a super engaging topic for young people that I've found because they're always always wanting to know what should I do for a living and then they read about this and they're like wow my livelihood selection can actually hurt people and it's just so interesting
1: Mm -hmm. it is very interesting
0: so um, what do you personally do like every day so like if you're working at a Buddhist organization Buddhist publishing what does your day look like at work
1: well I love that my job is so varied. So my job basically, though, has sort of three different um, streams. I edit, and I write, and I help plan issues. And so, um, you know, the writing, I write a large, wide variety of stuff, and I really like that it's so varied as well. Um, Often it's like, uh, you know, it's all about Buddhism but Buddhism is such a large topic, really. I'm, so essentially, my my articles often come down to something like Buddhism and something. So Buddhism and psychology, Buddhism and yoga, Buddhism and art, for example. Um, and over the years, I've written so many different articles. I think one that, one that comes to mind right now, it would be, um, I wrote an article once about Jeff Bridges and Bernie Glassman. So I went down to New York, and I I hooked up with Jeff Bridges and Bernie Glassman and Bernie Glassman actually just passed away. Yeah. He was a really well-known Zen teacher. So um that was really fun. I ended up writing kind of a braided profile of of them. They they were they were friends. So yeah.
0: Really uh and the, their book the the uh the dude and the Zen master is really wonderful as well.
1: Exactly. Yes, my my article dealt with that book. Um and then for editing, editing is um Editing is so much more relaxing for me compared to writing. You know, writing writing is really very fulfilling, but it's also hard. Um, there's a quote by Thomas Mann. It's um, a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people, hmm. and I really relate to that. You know, if you really care about it, you take a lot of you, you take a lot of care, and it's a lot of work. It's like wrestling a dragon.
0: And what's really interesting to me about today in our conversation is that you like interview teachers and authors like you do what i'm doing to you right now so i've sort of like flipped the tables on you a little bit today which i really love um what do you like about doing interviews with teachers and authors and people that you get to meet what do you what does that do for you
1: um well i should tell you that when i went into journalism school Um, back in 2001 I remember telling a friend that I was going to do this and she was like oh my god journalism that's so perfect for you you interview people all the time so interviewing people is kind of how I conduct a conversation so that's good um it comes naturally um but I think I wish I could tell you that I had some really like highfalutin reason or (laughs) something really great for me but I think honestly I'm just really nosy I like hearing about people's lives and what they think about and yeah, it's it's fascinating and and what they tell me really plays on my mind for years. I mean, I think back to this wonderful interview I had with Robert J. Lifton many years ago and I remember him talking to me about how almost all of us have the capacity to commit atrocities Hmm. and um, it's really helpful if we know the sorts of ways that committing atrocities becomes sort of the norm in a society because then that will help protect us from being able to commit atrocities. So that's one of the things that I think back on um, that I've heard about in an interview. But there are so many. I've talked to really wonderful, interesting people.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I love about this show, and you know I've done like over 75 of these interviews now. And Every now and then, like every couple of weeks, I'll go back and listen to an episode that I did. Like I'll pick the one I did a year ago or something like that.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And it's amazing how much I learn because when you're doing an interview like this, it, it doesn't really sink in until it's over and then you can process it later. But going back and listening to it, like there's so much wisdom to learn by going back and listening to what people have told me in the past. And I'm so grateful that I have them like recorded For for anybody to hear, it's just so amazing, and I feel so grateful. I tell people all the time, like, if you want to have good conversations, you should find something you love and start a podcast about it, because (laughs) it's amazing how many people will say yes to your invitation.
1: How did you start doing this?
0: So I was a high school teacher, um, and I was fortunate enough to teach a religious studies class for high school seniors um, for five years, and or um, a recent uh, job transfer took my family from Columbia, Missouri to Buffalo, New York. But in Columbia, Missouri, I taught religious studies in a public high school and every now and then we would have guest speakers in the class, and the students would ask the greatest questions imaginable. and I would leave each conversation like a buzz with excitement and inspiration. And I would realize that like um, You know, I could I could talk to people who were writing the books that I was reading, and I decided to start a show like this one to. You know, to help the parents and the families and the community understand a little bit more about religious literacy. And it just sort of took on a new life um, after about the first 20 episodes or so um, to incorporate authors. And I've had Pulitzer Prize winners. And I've had the children of Alan Watts on the show. And there's been so many amazing guests that I've had. And the name of the show is the same as the name of the class. The class was called Classical Ideas. And that's what it was called in the high school that I taught at.
1: And so why do you think it's so important to teach um, people about world religion?
0: Well, you know, it's all about like breaking down uh, walls and continuing to be a lifelong learner from, you know, after you graduate from college, uh, I think the, the amount of people that continue to read books after college just plummets. And I just see that like the meaning of life is just being curious. And these conversations to me are a way to like feed my own curiosity and um, and keep growing even as I get into my mid and late 30s. You know, this is a way for me to just keep growing as a person so that my worldview expands, my universe expands, and my universe won't contract inwards. And I see a lot of people that contract inwards, and that scares me.
1: Okay, that makes
0: sense. Cool. Um, so another thing that I know you're really interested in is Buddhist fiction and literature. Um are there books out there that people are reading that they might not know are inspired by Buddhism? Um,
1: there definitely are. Do you have uh, any favorites? What favorites? Um, none that I can think of off the top of my head. But I think that also there are a lot of books that have um, Buddhist ideas in them that aren't actually intended to be Buddhist. It's mm. just that Buddhist ideas are, are... Many Buddhist ideas are really quite universal. So they're just naturally present in the literature.
0: And I understand that you recently attended the International Buddhist Conclave in India, for which I'm quite envious, um, which included going to Buddhist pilgrimage sites. So can you tell me where you went, what you saw, what you did on this trip to India?
1: Sure. Oh, I I should just mention, but going back to your previous question, I just remembered that I guess... um, Harry Potter has some Buddhist threads that uh, are have just recently come out.
0: Spectacular.
1: Uh, but but uh, back to the now back to the international Buddhist conclave. Um, yeah, I went there. Um, I first of all, we started off in Delhi, and the international Buddhist conclave is sponsored by the Indian government, and it's every two years. And this was the sixth the sixth edition of that uh, conclave, and there were almost 300 people there from around the world, and they were Buddhist and non-Buddhist, and they were monastics, and they were lay people, and they were travel journalists, and they were um, Buddhist journalists, and um, travel agents. You know, it was a wide range of people, so that was really interesting. And so we had a conference in Delhi, and we went to the National Museum, and then we went on a bit of a pilgrimage, and we went to Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha obtained enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. And we went to Sarnath, which is where the Buddha um, gave his first teaching and really laid the foundations for all of Buddhism. And we also went to the ruins of Nalanda University, which, um, which was one of the world's first great universities. And it was a monastic university, Buddhist, and it flourished for 800 years. So that was very fascinating. And we also went to one last thing. We went to the Ajanta Caves, and I really encourage anybody out there to to Google the Ajanta caves because I can't really describe them in a way that does them justice. They're really magnificent. They're kind of in a horseshoe shape. Horseshoe shape. There's about 30 caves, and they're man-made caves, and they're all carved inside with uh, Buddhist sculptures and painted with Buddhist images, and they were used basically as sort of monasteries that were quite hidden and they were abandoned for many many years and there was a british hunting party out at one point and the t- a tiger seemed to sort of slip through the slip through the rock face and they realized that there were caves there and that's how they discovered them
0: oh my goodness um how long was the trip to india like how long were you gone
1: i was gone in total for 2 weeks but um i was partially spending some time traveling by myself and partially doing the International Buddhist Conflict.
0: So I know that you have um, a lot of travel experience, which we'll get to in just a second, but for you, as somebody who has committed to Buddhist practice now for about six, seven years, what was meaningful about going to places where the Buddha lived? Like, why did this matter to you?
1: Um. Well, I think the main thing is is that I really got to connect with the idea that the Buddha was actually a human being. I think that we have come to revere the Buddha so much that we sort of talk about him as if he were like a god or some sort of mythological figure. But it's really significant that he was human because that means that the awakening that he achieved can be achieved by any of us. And also it really connects to a lot of his teachings you know, the Buddha taught that impermanence is one of the marks of existence. And the Buddha himself was impermanent. And, um, you know, he got old, and he got sick. And he eventually died in his 80s, of a very, in a very ordinary, non glamorous way, you know, he died of food poisoning. Mm. So he was just like us. And that that's pretty meaningful. And then also, I think that Going to these places where the where the Buddha lived and where he practiced, um, it gave some context to his teachings. And um, I, I remember talking to Shantum Seth, who is he was at the International Buddhist Conclave, and he's a Buddhist teacher, and he also do, does pilgrimages himself uh, with his company, Buddha Path. And he was talking about how we can awaken anywhere, but sometimes you have to spend some time under the Bodhi tree to realize that say the maple tree back at your home can be your tree of awakening. So um, I really like that. And I and I really like Sean himself also also talked a lot about how, you know, India actually hasn't particularly rural India hasn't changed a whole lot in many ways since the Buddha was alive. And you can still find, you know, the the different characters that pop up in the life of the Buddha. Popped up in the life of the Buddha. You can still find some of those characters there, and you can have your own experience with them.
0: Marvelous. And you have a really extensive travel experience. And in our our private correspondence via email, you told me that you've been to something like twenty seven countries. Um, and I'm really interested in travel as well. How did you get so interested in traveling? Like, how old were you when you first like traveled seriously and began to pursue that as a lifestyle?
1: Um, I was really young when I became interested in traveling. I was like four years old. Um, it's kind of a silly story, but um, I have an aunt who's very imaginative and very playful with children. And one day we had to go to the store to get milk or something, and she started pretending with me, it was nighttime, that she started pretending that we could hitchhike to the airport and fly anywhere in the world we wanted to go. Hmm. And that's when traveling first became really appealing to me. I, of course, thought she was serious. Um, So that was really the beginning.
0: Excellent. And you became a teacher. Did you become a teacher first out of university?
1: Um, Yes. As soon as I finished university, I went to Japan to teach English as a second language.
0: Awesome. So you've been to Japan, Korea, Mexico, and Canada. And one of the things is like our experience kind of overlaps. Like I taught in Mexico as well in a northern Mexican city uh, about seven hours south of El Paso. Which um, was my first year of teaching. And that experience of teaching abroad in Mexico, England, and then I studied in Canada and I also worked in Hawaii for a while. These are transformative experiences. Like when you go away and work in other countries, like you don't return as the same person. And I'm curious what your interpretation of this is. How did being a teacher in other parts of the world change you?
1: Oh, God, in all sorts of ways. Um, I think that, um, first of all, I, I think it just helped me get to know myself more. I like The story that I told you about when I was four, I think when I was four and for many years after that, I sort of saw traveling as as kind of like a way to escape, like this magical, magical thing where you could hop on a plane and, and, and escape from your life. Um, and then I traveled quite a bit and lived in these places, as you said, and I got to really know that old, that old adage is true, that wherever you go there, you are. And, you know, then I had to kind of work with that. And so I still really love traveling, and I still find it magical in many ways, but I have different ex- expectations of it. Um, so, And then there's also that I think that as glamorous as it is, it is to go see the Eiffel Tower or, I don't know, the Pyramids in Tikal or whatever um, – Traveling is also kind of painful and, you know, inconvenient. And Mm -hmm. you really get to see who you are um, when you don't understand the language and nothing makes sense to you and uh, nothing matches your ideas about what's normal or the way things should be. And so I think traveling has helped to make me more flexible and more comfortable with ambiguity. And it's really made me understand on a kind of cellular level that there's no one right way of doing things. People do things differently all over the world and maybe we don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, but there is a reason. Um, So, so there's that. And then there's also just the joy of traveling um, and meeting people and making friends with people from other countries and getting to understand their concerns and what they love and what's important to them. And then I find that after I come home from living in you know, X, Y, or Z, or even visiting X, Y, and Z, I, when I then read the news about that country or hear something about that country, I never feel indifferent to that country. I, it feels more connected to me. So I think it just connects us more to the world. And, and I'd really like to know what your experience of that is, if it's sort of similar or...
0: Oh, sure. Okay, so one big example that jumps out at me is the constant national discussion in the U.S. about the border wall along the border with the U.S. and Mexico. And one thing that really stands out to me is that most Americans, I would argue, don't know people on the other side of what would be the border wall. And I do, and I know um, tremendously talented and fantastic young people who were my uh, 7th, 8th, and ninth graders when I taught in Mexico that just because of where they happened to be born on planet Earth— which is a total fluke if you even think about it in the first place. Now they will be living on the other side of this giant fence. And the fence, to me, is very symbolic. And I think that a lot of people don't think about the people that would be on the other side of the border wall. And I do. I think about them all the time. So whenever this conversation comes up... Um, I think about the people who live on the other side. I think about them having me in their homes. I think about them cooking meals for me. I think about them inviting me over. I think about them practicing their languages with me and me practicing my language with them. And I just think about those experiences and the people who helped me whenever I was struggling, like you said, because traveling is insanely difficult, inconvenient, confusing. And there are people on the other end who helped me navigate that confusion and that difficulty.
1: Exactly.
0: So it it changed me entirely. And I know that um, you mentioned to me as well that your husband is actually from Mexico. Um, What has it been like working with uh, cultural differences? Are there any things that you guys have had to navigate as a couple?
1: Yeah. um, I I actually met my husband when I was uh, teaching English down in Mexico. And uh, so we've been together now for... 12 years we've been married for 10 and we are very very happily married we're really well suited for each other um but yeah it's it's been complex because I find that for maybe the first 10 years that we were together um this hasn't come up lately at all but every once in a while a situation would come up where we just weren't on the same page at all and you know we'd argue and just not understand each other. And then finally, we'd realize, oh, this is a cultural difference. And then that would kind of clear the situation up. And I feel that one thing that helped us um, kind of clear things up is I had read a book called There's a Word for That in Mexico. And it it laid out chapter by chapter um, the sort of worldview in Mexico. And and I found that really helpful. So what's important in Mexico and just how they, how, how Mexicans tend to view things and, and why, like the historical reasons for these things. And, you know, every culture has their worldview. We have our worldview too. Um, so there could easily be a, a book about Canadians or a book about Americans. And But we don't think of it in those terms when it's our own culture, because it's just how we just think, oh, this is just the way it is. Um, And, of course, that's not true. Um, Yeah. um, So I really think that more cultural sensitivity, like, should be taught in the schools. So really understanding the ways that different cultures view things. Because that would really help us understand each other more. I think that it's one thing to say, oh, we want to all get along and love each other. But we really have to understand how to do that, how to make that work.
0: You know, okay. So whenever I was in Mexico, I taught at a private school that um, brings in teachers from the U.S., Britain, and and um, Canada because they're native English speakers, and they wanted us to work in native English uh, with people who are who grew up in Mexico. So the students and two of the women teachers that were my colleagues, from one was from Canada, one was from the United States. They both also married, they met their spouses, their husbands, in Mexico. So your experience is actually um, replicated with two of the people that I worked with in Mexico in 2007 and 2008. So that's really funny. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and then what happened? And you know, when when you're married, you have a really vested interest in making it work with the other person, and you really love the other person and, and value them. So, when you so that's why I think it's so important that we learn more about other cultures, because if it's that hard in 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 you know a loving married relationship, to just do it um, you know a, on a societal level can be more complex.
0: What's interesting about um, raising children in with uh, multicultural backgrounds?
1: Um Well, my husband and I, as I've said, have basically looked at our sort of cultural differences, and our kids are being raised here. So, um, though they're learning to speak Spanish they're a little more just immersed here but one thing that's really coming up for me with kids is the race issue and a, a couple of months ago I was sitting in the car with my daughter my daughter's three and suddenly she said you're white I'm black we don't match and you know my, my heart skipped a beat because you know Race is very loaded for adults, and I didn't know if that what this meant to her. You know, uh, is it loaded for her, or is it just like a did something? Did somebody say something to her to make it a loaded comment for her, or was it just sort of a on a, um, observation that we are different colors? Um, so I didn't know, but I I said to her, no. You know, I, I put our arms beside each other, and I said, no. Um, you know. Matching isn't about being the same. Matching is about looking beautiful together. And look, we look beautiful together.
0: Hmm. Wonderful. That's going to be a conversation that I think will uh, carry on through your life with them as well.
1: I think it will be.
0: So um, before we wrap up today, there's another thing that I want to talk about with you. And this is your fascination with Canadian birds, and you have another kid's book that just came out, my first book of Canadian birds, and I kinda wanna talk about the connection of bood- birds with um, Buddhism, but <laughs> first of all, why are you interested in birds um, in the first place?
1: Yeah, well, my interest really is about birds, not just Canadian birds, I like all birds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I love birds, maybe for all the same reasons that I think birds are so appealing to kids. And, like, you know, they fly. Like, they're like fairies or airplanes. And they're, like, all colors of the rainbows, rainbow, and they're all shapes and sizes. I love tall birds, hmm. for example. Um, and I think that lives mirror human life. and um, So, uh, for kids, I think they're, they're really going to be attracted to um, you know, birds bringing food to their babies or protecting their babies or teaching them how to fly. but you know that that's true for adults too. And also, I think I'm always fascinated personally by the fact that birds are related to dinosaurs, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's it. and And then you were asked talking about the Buddhism and bird connection, yeah um. <laughs> That's an interesting question. I actually wrote an article quite a few years ago called "Buddha's Birds," and it's on the Lions Roar website. If anyone's interested in checking it out, um, there are lots of um, there are birds in Buddhist folklore and uh, Buddhist teachings, so you can see some of the connections in that article. Um, but there isn't like a, there isn't a huge connection between why I went from. Buddhism to birds it's just I have a lot of interests I, I, and I think that's true with a lot of people who write um, to, to be interested in a lot of things, so they're kind of separate issues
0: nice um, So as a parent I have a five-year-old as I mentioned and why should I help my child develop an appreciation for birds?
1: well I think that Birds being interested in birds helps get kids outside and, you know, there are all sorts of studies that suggest that being outside is a really good place for kids and adults, um, It lowers stress, and um, it's just really good for your health. And then I also think that if kids have an interest in birds, that, and they love birds, that kind of love can spill over to having a love for the natural world and wanting to protect wild spaces. And that, quite frankly, is something we really need right now. And then finally, I think that um, having an interest in birds can be a first step in taking an interest in biology and other sciences. And and that's good, too.
0: Awesome. Well, Andrea Miller, uh, author and editor, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. I'm curious if you can just tell people where they can find you if they want to know more and follow your work.
1: Um, well, besides the stuff that we've discussed um, and you know, Lion's Roar is always putting up new stuff. I did want to mention that um, the story that I wrote about my pilgrimage experiences um, with the International Buddhist Conclave will be in the December-January issue uh, of Lion's Roar. And I also wanted to mention that I also have three anthologies that I did for Shambhala publication. Um, There's Right Here With You, which is about uh, bringing mindful awareness into our relationships. And I also did Buddha's Daughters, which is um, uh, teachings from women who are shaping Buddhism in the West. And then finally, All the Rage, which is uh, Buddhist wisdom on anger and acceptance.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure.
1: Great, thank you very much, Greg. I loved it.
0: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast.